0: Our scripture reading today should be fairly familiar. We've been working on this one for a while, but it's from Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the very word to God.
1: How many of you are waiting for a CD series that we release called Beth Rice Reads the Bible? <laughs> I'm not sure we could convince her, but maybe if enough of us pester her, our Old Testament passage this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 25. It's on page 586 in your pew Bible. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is our last week in the story of the prodigal son or the story of the two lost sons or the story of the loving father or the story of the prodigal God. However, you want to look at it. Uh, there are many ways to look at it, depending on uh, certainly where you find yourself in the story. And so uh, we have this younger son who has become a real problem. And and he does this very problematic thing and he goes and he finds himself in a situation where um, he's longing for food that that pigs eat, which as a Jewish man kind of tells us, he's just sort of forgotten who he even is. Um, and so he sort of, his hunger gets the better of him. He comes home and he finds his father in a very unexpected situation. He finds his father out on the road watching for him. Um, if you haven't read Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, I highly recommend it. It took this teaching for me, uh, and just turned it on its head and I've never seen it the same way since. Um, but, um. We find the father just doing something that a Middle Eastern patriarch would just never do. And he would just be out, he'd just out on the road looking for this son who said, you know, I'd, I would just rather you were already dead and I could just have what's mine. Um, and then we have this other problematic son, uh, this, this elder brother who, who we've talked about, um, Dave talked about a couple of weeks ago, who just has a real problem with, the celebration and um and redemption of this younger of this younger brother um incidentally i find it as as beth was reading it 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 stood out to me yet again uh just how interesting it is that the older son refers to his younger brother when he's talking to his father he refers to his younger brother as this son of yours not my brother this son of yours So then last week, uh, Dave Sterling led us in this teaching that the idea that there's this true elder brother. The job of the elder brother was to go and get the younger son. And so our true elder brother, Christ, did that for us. He came to bring us back home into relationship with the father so that we might be able to go home again. Um, But there's this one last piece. This idea of of the feast being thrown in this younger son's honor, um, and just as we saw in Isaiah, this concept of the feast has been used over and over and over again in Scripture to describe our relationship with God, to describe our salvation. Um, and so um, there are, there are notes in the uh, in the church bulletin today for you to follow along with, uh, if you so choose. I certainly encourage you to do that. Um, it always helps me kind of stay connected to, to what's going on. Um, and it's also nice to go back and review those later in the week, uh, in, in your time with the Lord. So in Matthew eight eleven, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from East and West and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So once again, we see Jesus describe this, this relationship as a feast, as sort of this communal event. And I, you know, we, we've been talking about parables all summer, and I think that Jesus chose this particular word picture of a feast because we have always, humanity has always celebrated occasions and big events in our lives with food. With food. Some of us have celebrated a little bit too often or a little bit too long. Um, but don't look up here. <laughs> but um, no, we have. We There's just this joyful thing about the idea of a feast. Many of you may have memories of. Thanksgiving feasts or Christmas feasts or Easter or uh, any number of things, wedding feasts. Um, I think he chose this word picture because it's easy for us to relate to. Um, And it also explains in a very simple way what Jesus intended our salvation experience, our relationship with him to be like. And so in that we see that our salvation is indeed an experience. It's experiential. It's something that we live out. A feast in and of itself is very experiential. A feast is a place, uh, as as Tim Keller says so beautifully, where our appetites and our senses are filled up. I can remember I was sharing in Sunday school this morning, I can can remember uh, my, my mom getting up at some just crazy hour of the morning to start making food on thanksgiving and as a child i thought why would you do that but they make this stuff pre-made just go and you get you just you just heat it up um but i loved coming downstairs in the morning to those smells you know isn't it funny how the how those smells just sort of waft up the stairs into your bed, and they just sort of pick you up out of bed and get you, you know, bacon. bacon. Anyway, I better, I, I know it's, you know, people are starting to get hungry. It's nearing lunchtime. I'll spare you the detail. Um, but we commemorate so many things with just these immense meals. When we were talking in Sunday school this morning, somebody even mentioned. Um, you know uh, even even funerals, even even celebrations of, of life, we do a wonderful job at this church of rallying around families and making sure that they, they don't have to worry about that part of it, that after, you know after they're done with this with this grievous event that they can go and, um, and share a meal together and and have uh, some joy uh, together. And many of us have, have examples of that in our own life where we, we've had a funeral and then, you know, we, we share a meal and we sit around and we tell stories about the person who's just passed. And and it's a really joyful event in the midst of such sorrow. Um, we put a lot of time and effort, uh, Mark Taylor mentioned this morning in Sunday school, we put a lot of expense even into these meals. The father certainly put a lot of expense into this meal for the son and which is one of the issues. The older brother is looking at what will ultimately be his resources, his money, going to provide this feast for his younger brother, who, he's, uh, who, who he just can't forgive. In uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, we, we find the story of Jesus' first miracle. And Jesus' first miracle, interestingly enough, was turning water into wine at a wedding feast. The wine is running out. And Jesus' first miracle is to provide more wine, which seems odd to some of us. We, we go, why would he choose that? But I think it comes back to this whole idea of the feast, that Jesus came to, provide, to bring and provide real, true, lasting joy. Not happiness, not pleasure, but real, true, lasting joy. The gospel writer, John, calls this a sign of who Jesus was. This miracle was a sign of who he was. And in this, we see in, in Psalm 34, uh, which Christian read part of earlier, the Bible literally calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste and see these physical um these physical words being used with regard to our relationship with God. Because salvation is more is about more than just intellectual assent. Anybody can agree with something. You've, you've heard the phrase, even the devil believes in God. Anybody can agree with something. Anybody can go, uh, yeah, I, I can see that. But our relationship with God is about way more than intellectual assent. It's an experience. It's meant to be lived. It's not meant to just be agreed with. It's not a concept that Jesus is trying to sell us on. It's a feast that he's inviting us into. And so consequently, this feast is about more than... Being a church on sunday it's about more than being a part of a small group it's about more than being here on wednesday nights those are all really wonderful things and they're important uh, in, in our in our in our faith because we spend time with other christians in these situations so they're important But this feast is about more than that it's about taking part in the feast it's about spending every day of your life Sharing in the joy that Jesus brings. Which is easier said than done. But as we rest in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, again, the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, not work that we did. Work, in fact, that we could never have done for ourselves. And if you doubt that, read the Old Testament. Start with Leviticus. We come to experience the life-changing reality of our salvation in this experience as we rest in the work that Christ has done, as we really experience that, as the reality of what Christ did for us sinks in. We, we literally taste and see that the Lord is good. In fact, Jesus gave us this example this, this Lord's Supper in which we literally taste and see that the Lord is good. And in this, Jesus is the Lord of the Feast. He is the master of the banquet. He is the one inviting us in. We see in Jesus' first miracle that he came to offer both joy and relationship. In, in this miracle Jesus keeps the wedding feast going because when the wine runs out, where does everybody go? What? Where does everybody go when the wine runs out? Home. <laughs> or you don't have to go home but you can't stay here. In this one miracle Jesus shows that he is Lord of the feast. He he invites people to continue This feast to continue this celebration, to continue enjoying community with one another. Jesus came to offer access to a life spent in relationship with the father. He came to invite us to this feast where we literally sit down at the table with our eternal father. I mean, it's in Matthew 8 when Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Who but the Lord of the feast could make that statement? And so because there's so much physicality to this feast, because of the sacrament of Holy Communion, Our salvation is material. It's physical. It's tangible. And we don't really think about it that way. We think about the idea of the gospel or or salvation. We think about it as just sort of a concept. But it's much more than that. Because Jesus understands. Because he was present at creation. Because he participated in creation. Jesus understands that we are physical beings. Jesus doesn't just see us as these spiritual beings. He doesn't just see us as just these souls walking around in sort of flesh bags, you know? Jesus knows that we are physical beings and he understands all that that brings with it. Because if we weren't physical beings, I think there'd be a lot of sins that we weren't quite so tempted to take part in. But our bodies, our bodies are a stumbling block for many of us. Just the fact that Jesus came down, leaving the community of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he dwelt among us, proves that God wanted to know us on an intimate, physical, material level. And that God in turn is is inviting us to know him on an intimate, physical level. It's almost as if God wanted to just look us in the face, to look us eye to eye. That's astounding. That's astounding. Many world religions would tell you that God would never do that. God would never dirty himself to come down and be with humans, much less become one. But Christianity alone believes that not only did our God come down and look us in the face, but he made himself vulnerable and ultimately killable. We alone believe that. And that's powerful. Our salvation is truly a material, physical thing. As I said before, we've been talking all summer about parables, and to me, parables are proof that Jesus wants me to understand my salvation on a physical level because parables are all about the physical. They're all about the tangible. They're these word pictures, but just we started this summer on the parable of the sower, it's a very physical thing. It's a very tangible thing. We can, we can picture the sower tossing these seeds out. We can feel the soil. We can understand the soil. Jesus wants us to understand our relationship with him on a physical, real, tangible, material level. Through parables, Jesus brings the idea of salvation down to a level where we can get it. Because otherwise, it's kind of hard to get. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That, that a man would come and and certainly it doesn't make sense to me that a man would come and give his life for me knowing how, how just knowing how bad I would be. But but he did it anyway. But logically, in a human sense, that doesn't make sense to me. But through parables, Jesus brings that down to the lower shelf where I can access it. And also, if Jesus didn't care about our physical bodies, why would he ever have spent any time healing anybody? Or feeding anyone. Why would he ever have healed a leper, with all that that entailed and all of the cultural problems that that brought? I mean, when they, when when Jews saw a leper, they were supposed to literally shout "unclean" multiple times, so that everyone knew that this person was not fit to be touched. And Jesus went to those people and he healed them. He gave he gave blind people sight. Why would he have done that if he didn't care about our physical bodies? You know, so many, so much of the Eastern religion is focused on just our minds and this higher consciousness, and uh, Jesus is concerned about more than just our. He's concerned about our souls, but but our bodies are important as well. The physicality of the whole thing matters because God made us both soul and body, and we are told that God will redeem both our souls. And our bodies, <laughs> and so as I said, we experience a physical meal with Jesus in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, in Holy Communion, or, or the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table, or however you want to, um, however you want to refer to it. Jesus left us this physical, tangible way for us to experience His love and forgiveness, for us to experience what He did for us. In the sacrament of Holy Communion, we literally sit at the table with Jesus and share a meal. This small meal that represents this huge feast. Isn't that interesting? Bread and juice just don't do it justice, folks. They just don't. And I'm not saying we buy bad juice around here. I mean, it could be Welch's. It could be the real stuff. But bread and juice just don't do it justice. But it's this huge feast That's represented in this small thing. And I love what we do here, that we experience it both individually and as a community. Jesus cares about our material world. He does. He cares about this world. He created it. We, we explored at Christmas time, Jesus as creator. He created this world. Of course, he cares about it. <clears throat> Jesus wants to renew this material world because things as they are today and we as we are today are not as he intended them to be. And we can feel that. We today are not as he created us to be. But our goal is to get there. Our goal is to become every day a little more aligned with Christ so that one day we might be able to be who he created us to be. We were not meant to bear the sin that weighs on us day after day, which is why it hurts, because we weren't meant to bear it. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. I've I've always loved it. If If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If nothing here can satisfy you, then perhaps you weren't made for here. Perhaps you were made for something bigger. Probably the explanation of of heaven and of of this feast that I love the most, um, that that really explained it to me in a tangible way was from uh, David Platt. And, and, And Platt says, when you think about heaven, I want to urge you to stop thinking about a place where all the finest amenities of this world will be there. Our God is not trying to compete with our economic prosperity in the West. Don't think about a place where we'll have all the amenities this world has to offer. Think about a place where all the amenities this world has to offer pale in comparison with the fact that we are dwelling with almighty God and we will be with him and there won't be more crime and there won't be more pain and there won't be more cancer and we'll be with him forever jesus cares about this physical world and he wants to redeem this physical world as badly as he wants to redeem us in fact we're told several times throughout scripture that that jesus in the end will come and there will be A new heaven and a new earth and he will redeem this world and we long for that day. Jesus' miracles just give us a foretaste of what that will be like. They just give us the small glimpse. In his miracles, Jesus was restoring things and restoring people to the way they were meant to be. And so we are promised that Jesus will redeem this physical world and that he'll bring us home that we can return home. So also our salvation is individual. We are accepted by God, certainly as a community, but we are accepted by God individually, on an individual level, through the work of Jesus Christ. Through communion, like we said, we join Christ at the table in a very intimate, individual way. But we are used to this performance reward type system. You know, it's ingrained in us from the time that we're small. I'm I'm ingraining it in my children. And, And before you even realize it, you're ingraining it. If you do this, you'll get this. If you do this thing that you don't want to do, you'll get to do this thing that you do want to do. It's performance, reward. And then we get into the workforce, and it's the same thing. If you meet these goals, if you do these things, if you have a good performance review, whatever, then you'll get this raise, you'll get this bonus, you'll get this whatever it is that you want. Sort of the carrot and the stick method of things but we sort of default to that we we de- we default to it because it's in our nature because we're trained from being very small to think of things that way but the gospel doesn't say that the gospel says that god gives himself to us and therefore we obey other world religions and our culture says you do these things, then you get God, then you get what you want after you've done these things. In fact, even in Christianity, for those of us that, that struggle with legalism and, and, and moralism, which I, I, I have to be very careful because I could slip into that very easily. That's what legalism and moralism say. If you do these things, if you act this way, then you're invited into the feast. But that's not the picture I see Christ paint. So then through the gospel, through inviting us into this feast, God gives us a new identity. We identify ourselves in all kinds of ways, whether it's our occupation or our family or whatever, whatever it is. But God gives us this new identity. And we're told in in Romans we become a co-heir with Christ. That's huge. We become a co-heir with God's only son. And so in the same way that Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, God changes the way we are identified. What Christ has done when we enter into this feast becomes a part of who we are it becomes how we are we identify ourselves in revelation chapter 19 verse 9 we're told that we are invited individually to the marriage supper of the lamb john says and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb it's this individual God reaching down and inviting us into His, inviting us to His table. And so, in the same way, if we want to permanently change ourselves, we individually must live out the gospel. We, I'm not going to change because Mike Freeman is living the gospel really well. I'm going to change because I come to new and better understandings of who Jesus is and how Jesus would have me act in a given situation. The answer to every problem is the gospel, is to become more like Christ and less like us. That's the answer to everything. If you go home today and you turn on a 24-hour news channel, I guarantee you the answer to everything you see on there is going to be, Jesus is going to be for us to become more like him and less like us. Because as we learn to understand Jesus's sacrificial love for us, we become more willing to sacrifice ourselves for others. As we learn Jesus's love for the poor, our hearts begin to break for the poor. As we learn to understand Jesus's love for the incarcerated, our hearts begin to break for the incarcerated. And so on and so on and so on. Insert your situation here. Our lives begin to change as we come to a deeper understanding. The kind of change that could never be produced by just obedience to rules. By just moralist, legalistic obedience. um, Or adherence to doctrine or fear of consequences. Because the motivation of all of those things is really just fear. And it's not enough. It's not enough. Eventually it fades. But as we become more like Christ, as we understand Christ more, and, and we alter ourselves to act like Christ in, in situations in our lives, real, authentic, permanent, genuine gospel change begins to happen in and around us. And so lastly, our, our salvation is, is communal. Our salvation affects those around us. It's a, it's a communal thing. Just as a feast is a communal event, feasts bring communities of people together. We were talking earlier how, you know, in the story of the prodigal son, uh, we're talking at Sunday school, and in the, in the story of the prodigal son the, this feast seems to be fairly huge and it would make sense that there would be members of the community invited and all of these things. Um, a feast brings people together. If you think about, I think about some of the, the wedding receptions that uh, I've attended here at Alabada and, and elsewhere. I, I often end up sitting with people that I don't normally sit with. Uh, especially if there's, if there's, you know, the, those, those of you that are evil enough to assign our seats. So we have to sit with people who aren't like us and you end up having conversations that you wouldn't normally have. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And you leave there thinking, oh, wow, I know those people a lot better now, or, oh, I met this person for the first time. You know, that was that and you, you and your spouse or whoever you're with end up talking about it. It's really hard to go into a feast. I think. And, of course, I talk a lot, uh, as you well know. Um, But it would be very hard for me to go into a feast and just sort of sit by myself and not talk to anyone. And that would be tough. That would be really tough. Um, And that's not a criticism on introversion or anything like that. We are all made in different ways. I, I, I totally understand that. But there's something about a feast that breaks down our walls, about breaking bread together, that breaks down our walls And opens us up to one another. When you eat alone, if you go to lunch alone, whatever, I don't know that you'd sit and call it a feast. You could, a feast for one. uh, But we we use these things to celebrate holidays and to celebrate special occasions because it brings people together. Um, A feast by its very nature inspires community. And so by inviting us to his feast, Christ invites us to have a relationship with him. He invites us into the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That community that's been shared since the beginning of time. He invites us into that same community. In fact, in in many cultures, I would say in most cultures, certainly in American culture, to offer to eat someone is, is to offer them friendship and relationship to to sit down and eat with someone to sit across the table from someone and share a meal is to say i want to know you more or i want to talk with you or i want to spend time with you and so it it sort of opens up a relationship and so you can't grow in your relationship with christ and not be part of the feast you can't sit by yourself and be a spectator Salvation is not a spectator event. It's meant to be lived out both individually and as a community. We cannot have a relationship with Christ and stand outside the feast. And I know that that's hard for some of us. It was hard for the elder brother in Jesus' story. It was hard for the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to. It was hard. And, you know, we boo and hiss when the Pharisees come on the scene. But the Pharaoh, these guys were tasked with carrying on this belief in God in the midst of, uh, you know, Israel's this big. And there's all these cultures invading. And I, I, I totally agree that a lot, of, a lot of the rules that they came up with were just for political reasons or for control. But, you know, part of it, too, was we've got to have rules or people will end up turning to... This or turning turning to that, and uh, th- there is some security in clinging to rule following, because you can measure how you're doing. If I'm doing these things and I'm doing okay, and God and I are square and we're on good terms, what Jesus did was he took the black and white of the rule following and he made it gray for them, and it was scary. As a rule follower. I can I can say that because um, it's very easy to slip into just making rules. But if we stand outside the feast, like the elder brother, we are left with this choice. Jesus does not give us this nice, comfortable, warm closure at the end of the story. He gives. He gives us a choice. He gives the elder brother a choice. He gives the Pharisees a choice. And so in the same way, as we've discussed, Jesus leaves this body with a choice. Are you going to take part in the feast? Are you going to come into this relationship or are you going to stand outside because you can't get past whatever it is? You can't get past something that you've done. You can't get past something that someone else has done. Will we enter the feast? Will we enter into relationship with the Father because that matters more to us than anything else? Or is something holding us back? Because Christ does not leave us with the option to say things like, Oh, I have no problem with with Jesus. In fact, I am a Christian. I just can't stand organized religion. I am a Christian. I just can't I just can't stand the church. You can't both love Christ and and hate the body at the same time. You must both love Christ and love the body. And that's messy. And that's hard. But that is where our salvation gets lived out. That is where we take part in the feast. What keeps most of us, I think, outside the feast Whether we have a younger brother mentality or an older brother mentality is our hangups, is 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 our our prejudice, whether it's against ourselves or against someone else. We we just sometimes just like the elder brother, we cannot bear the idea that someone who once struggled with homosexuality or who once. Struggled with racism or who once struggled with drugs or who or or who murdered someone or whatever it is. Name your Samaritan. We, We just can't get past the fact that we might be sitting at the table. With someone like that. We've all had those experiences. Don't hear judgment. I've totally had those experiences where I think that person can't be redeemed. how dare I think something like that? Because if God can redeem my mess, God can redeem anyone's mess, regardless of what that mess looks like. But you know what the most beautiful thing is? Is that when we sit down at the feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb, we will all have been made clean. And so whatever it is that we struggled with will have been wiped away. And we will sit at table with people who are not like us. And we will worship God. And it will be awesome. And so this morning what we're left with is a choice. Is will we enter into that? And if you're here this morning and you haven't entered into that relationship with Christ... Whatever it is you're holding on to, whatever it is that's keeping you from entering into that feast, lay it down. And if you need help laying it down, I invite you to just come up after the service and and, and I or, or one of our elders will pray with you and, and we can talk that out. But please don't let something you're carrying that you were never meant to carry keep you from entering into the feast. I pray with me. Oh, Father, you give us this beautiful picture in your word of what this relationship with you is like. Thank God we confess that there are all kinds of things that keep us from fully entering into that relationship. We all come this morning in different spots in our journey, different, different places in our journey. Some of us are just dipping our toe in to that relationship. Some of us are up to our ankles. Some of us are up to our waists. But God, no matter where we are on the journey, uh, we are so governed by fear so much of the time. Oh, God, help us this morning uh, as we continue to worship you, to lay those things down. And God, to lay them down and to leave them here and not to pick them back up when we walk out those doors not to pick them back up when Monday morning comes. Oh, God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this offer of salvation that you give us in Jesus. And, God, may we have the strength and the courage to to take your hand and enter into the feast. We pray this in Jesus' name.